0: Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at Divine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. So, we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15 this morning. As I say, we're, we're, as Andy says, we're carrying on through uh, our series in Luke, looking at this concept of seeing Jesus uh, in these chapters. We've just heard from uh, Andy last week and from Lauren again, just giving us a reminder that last week we read about Jesus' baptism. And now we get to a, a new part in the story. He's come from that kind of very victorious scene of the baptism with the heavens parting. And now we come to the scene of him in the wilderness. And this morning, as we get into this chapter, we're actually going to find ourselves going through the whole story of the Bible. We're going to find ourselves going back in order to understand where we are now, because really, this one chapter, in a sense, sums up the whole Bible, and in a sense, sums up the rest of Jesus' ministry in Luke. So we will see how that happens this morning. So let's read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered. Um, For to me, it has been delivered uh, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest your foot should strike against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning... As I say, we want to look at the story of the Bible and see how this story takes uh, place within that story. Now, the thing about stories, really, is that they often don't uh, end the way that they began. Or rather, in order to get to the ending, there's various twists and turns that they take. But we have to be diligent as readers, as story um, understanders, to remember what the first lines were and to see how the, the various tanglements that come relate to it. Let me give you a, an example from a story we all know well. Red Riding Hood. The story of Little Red Riding Hood begins in a very simple way. There is a mother, and she has made some cakes, some treats, and she wants them to go to her mother, to her child's grandmother. Very simple. And so she, that, this is the storyline, but she has an, an agent, someone in order to do this for her. So she has her daughter, Red Riding Hood, and she sends her this task. Now, in order to help her, she gives her some directions. She says, go this way, because the danger is that she'll get lost in the dangerous woods. So the story, the the beginning of the story builds very, very simply. I want you to do this. Here's something to help you. Here's something that might go wrong. Now, gradually, this story changes, and I don't need to go through it all, but we know what unfolds. And by the time we get to near the end, this original storyline that we saw is really gone completely, and it's been replaced by something else. Now, the story is about a woodcutter who's coming to the rescue of a little girl, and he's using his axe to do so, and he's helped by his bravery and his strength, And he's, the problem is there's a big bad wolf. And so we see how this story, which started one way, has now gone a very, very different way. Still part of the same story. This is a twist in the story. Now the story would not be complete if he had saved Red Riding Hood. If she comes out and she then just says, thanks very much, I'm gonna go home. No, she's come out in order to now achieve that first line of the story. She gives treats to Granny and so the story is completed. The mother has sent her treats to her mother. Red Riding Hood has given the cakes to her grandmother. Now, all I'm doing is showing something that we all understand quite well. Stories always end up untying all the twists that come along the way and they get back to the main point. Now the Bible too is a story. It's a true story but it's a story nonetheless. And what we find is that God has marvelously weaved it together. He has marvel, marvelously stitched each of the stories, each of the twists and the turns together to form one story. The Bible is constantly referring back to itself. Um, there's a graph, which hopefully you're seeing right now. Uh, the lines along the bottom there are every single chapter of the Bible. The really, really long one that you see poking down that Psalm 119. Um, Now, every line you see is a place where the Bible refers back to itself. The longer the line, the more green it gets, the smaller the line, the more purple. What you're seeing there is that every single part of this story is weaved and linked in together. The Bible is always going back to what came before. So the Bible isn't constantly launching new stories. We talk about Bible stories, but we do need to understand they are all part of one big story. It's always expanding that same story. There's twists and there's turns, but it all comes back to the main thing. So just as with Red Riding Hood, the Bible story really starts very, very simply. God intends to bless creation. That's the first line. That's that's all he intends to do. God intends to bless creation, to establish his kingdom over the whole of it, to dwell in the midst of his people in perfect righteousness forevermore. And as part of this intention, he creates Adam, the first human, the one who represents all humanity, the one through whom all, uh, all creation will be swarming with life dwelling in unity with God. But Adam is not yet perfect. This is really important. Adam has not yet got to the point he will get to. And so God gives him a covenant, an agreement that includes a test dependent on his perfect obedience. If he succeeds, he will receive eternal life for himself and all those who he represents. If he is obedient, all will be well. They will dwell with God in perfect harmony forevermore. And yet, whilst Adam dwells in a paradise garden, while he dwells comfortably with as much food as he wants, we find that him and his wife give in to the temptation of the devil. And they do the one thing that God has commanded them not to do, to eat from the tree now the covenant has been broken they have failed at their task and rather than a secure eternal life for his people instead now death and sin enters in sin infects creation god's good order is gradually unwound all humanity is plunged into evil sin and enmity with god And as you go through the Bible from Genesis 3 where this happens, you find gradually all you find is it's getting worse and worse. The very next chapter is a story about two brothers uh, in, in war with each other and one kills the other. We then move into stories about people killing whom they will. And then it just gradually unwinds more and more and more. You find everything seems to be falling apart. And as you get to the end of the book of Genesis, you really get a sense that there is... This ending of this book is nothing like the beginning. This plan of a perfect, righteous humanity seems a million miles away. But one thing you do see is a glimmer of hope. Now, it's a glimmer. A hope that God's original plan has not failed. But he is launching a rescue plan to restore people to himself. We see him making more covenants, but not based on works, based on grace to save them from their sin. A restoration is coming to save them from this mess. So now the story has changed from that first storyline we saw. Now it's about God bringing a restoration to humanity, to bring salvation to them. He's gonna make an atonement to save them, but the danger is that sin is gonna creep in. The story's moved on to the next phase. And so as we move from Genesis into Exodus, the next book, we find that God calls the people of Israel out of slavery, calls them to be his people. Moses stands before Pharaoh and he says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's God's command to Pharaoh. Israel is my son. Let them go. Because what we're finding is that Israel are being called out of slavery in order to be the new Adam, in order to be what Adam represented, the new humanity, the ones that he will save from their sin in order to fulfill his original plan, for them to be a light to the nations. And when they're commissioned, they're commissioned to be holy, to follow after God's law, to set aside their sin, And fulfill what it means to be God's people. So now we see that the story is about God calling, uh, restoring Israel, calling Israel to bless his creation, to bless the fallen creation. And he makes covenant promises to help them. And yet the danger is uh, sinful humanity and Satan and sin. But now we're getting back. It looks like we're starting to untie the story and get back to the first one. And so in order to bring them to himself, God leads them on an amazing path of salvation. He brings them out of exile in Egypt through the Red Sea, where they pass through the water and come to the wilderness. Now, in the wilderness, they disbelieve in God. They are faithless, and so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years Whilst there, they are tested and tempted in various ways to see if they will live up to this calling to be God's people. But instead, we see them fall into idolatry. We see them act faithlessly. They grumble against God for food. Before they've even entered into the land where God is taking them, they're there on the wrong foot. They've got there as people who are grumbling against God. And really, from there, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of Israel constantly failing to be what it means to be God's people. It's, it's kind of a story of yes, buts. Yes, they're in the promised land, but they didn't really get there faithfully. Yes, they have the kingdom of God in a sense, but these kings seem to be really wicked, Yes, they have God's temple presence dwelling among them, but they are constantly following other, uh, other gods. It's a story of yes, but. And as we see, uh, as these carry on, as they carry on in their sin, we find that God's means of restoring the world instead just add to its pollution. They are just as bad as the world they were called out of. And so as we wrap up the Old Testament, as we get to the end of the Old Testament, we have a twofold problem, really. Sin is rampant, not only among the world, but among God's people. Sin must be dealt with. But that test, that covenant test that God gave at the beginning is still broken. It's still unfulfilled. No one has been able to elevate humanity to that position that Adam was called to. And so as we get to the, old of the, uh, the end of the Old Testament, we read in Hosea 6, verse 7, But like Adam, they, as in Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. A better translation might be, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Oh, see how they dealt faithlessly with me. There's a kind of a sense of despair. They have failed to be the new Adam, just as Adam failed in his task. Israel and Adam have failed to live up to God's calling and have instead descended into sin. Now, you might be wondering why I've gone through all that. Why have we read all that and understood all that in order to get to Luke 4? Well, that's fair enough. But let's remind ourselves of where we find ourselves in Luke 4. See, just as Israel was called out and called God's son, And then taken through the Red Sea, taken through the water into the wilderness to be tested for 40 years. So Jesus, as Andy read last week, is called God's son at his baptism, taken through the waters and then into the wilderness for 40 days. And this is where the difference begins. Whereas Israel's time was marked by grumbling against God and a loose grip on his word, what they'd spoken to them, Jesus appears now as the one who has treasured God's word, as the faithful one. Every temptation that is launched against Jesus is battered away by God's word. And it's interesting, every Bible verse that Jesus quotes here that we read earlier against the devil is taken from Deuteronomy in the time where Israel were wandering in the wilderness. Jesus seems to be aware of what story he's fulfilling here. He is fulfilling what they failed to be. And so as he leaves the wilderness, he doesn't leave in unbelief as Israel did. Instead, he leaves in victory, having begun his defeat of the devil. He leaves with authority over the evil one. He has begun to defeat the powers of darkness. That part of the story, the twist that Israel put in the story, is now being unwound. Jesus now stands as the true Israel. He has regathered Israel around himself. Now, to be part of Israel is not to be a certain race or live in a certain country, but to be part of Jesus, to to find your identity in him. And so Jesus, like the woodcutter, has cut open the wolf's belly so that we can begin to return to that story. Jesus has fulfilled Israel. But what we must remember as I say, with stories, as we need to keep going back, Israel is not where the story began. Israel themselves came to put right the original task, to make right where Adam went wrong. And so we don't just need the story of Israel fulfilled, we need to go back further than that. Now, in this story, as I, as I just said, we find ourselves introduced to Jesus, the Son of God, as he's baptized in Luke 3. Luke then immediately gives us a genealogy. And it might seem like a funny place to just start putting a list of names. But what Luke is doing is basically what I've just done, because he starts going back through the history. And he goes back through the kings of, um, of Israel, through the, through the people of Israel. He gets all the way back to Abraham the one who began Israel, but then he carries on going even back further than Israel because he's reminding us not just of the story of Israel, but the story that Israel themselves fit into. He's reminding us of the same story that I have just told. He's giving us the big picture. And as we get to the end of his genealogy, we read this, Adam, the son of God, In just a few verses, we're introduced to two sons of God. We have Jesus in Luke 3 at his baptism and then Adam. We have two sons of God, two sinless ones, two ones who are not touched by sin. And then Luke goes on to show us two completely different interactions. What we have is the same story in many ways, but in, 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 in many other ways, two completely different stories. The first Adam we find in a lush garden with as much food as he wants, except for one tree. He has personally been given God's audible word, one command to treasure and apply. Meanwhile, the second Adam, if you like, Jesus is in a barren wilderness with no food in his belly, but having treasured God's word in his heart from the scriptures. And yet the same test of obedience, of righteousness comes, and we see two very different responses. To Adam and Eve, Satan comes and very slyly operates He isn't explicit or foolish with this temptation. He knows what to do. He knows how to get them. He doesn't come and say, oh, what's the point in obeying God? That would be too obvious. That would be too explicit. Instead, he comes and he says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the very easy answer to that. No, he didn't say that. He said the opposite. You can eat from any tree in the garden except for one. Now, surely they know that, right? Surely they've treasured up that command. Eat from any tree, except don't eat from this tree. But they don't answer like that. Instead, they answer, no, we can eat from any tree, but we may not touch that tree. Now, do you hear that? They've, they've changed God's command. They have made God's command more burdensome than it was. We can't even go near the tree that's not what God said. The garden is yours. Just don't eat from its fruit. They have made God's command more burdensome on themselves. They have, they have intensified a command. Now, because they have misremembered God's command, they have now given Satan a foothold. He now has an upper hand over them. And so when Satan comes, he knows what to do. And he says, oh no, God, God knows that you can do that. And they give in. And when Satan comes to Jesus, we find he tries the same tricks. If you are the son of God, do this. Surely, surely, Jesus, if you're the son of God, you've got the right and the power to do this. God, seriously, he's not going to stop you from doing that, is he? And Jesus' response is nothing like Adam's. Jesus doesn't try to reason or adapt God's word, his reply is blunt. It is written. God says this. The safest way to possibly uh, 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 unequip the devil. God has said this. Jesus equips himself with the sword of God's word. Exactly what we must do when we find ourselves in this situation. And each temptation, we find that Jesus comes back to the same point. God has spoken, and this is what he says. He has treasured up God's commands. He knows how to fight against the enemy. And notice that Satan never tries to push back once God's word has been quoted. He knows that he does not have the power to stand against it. And so in every temptation, Jesus prevails where Adam failed. And unlike Adam, who uh, left the garden and was cast into the wilderness, along with all whom he represents, now Jesus leaves the wilderness in the power of the Spirit in order to remake creation for all who he represents. Jesus takes us back to the first line Of this story. The test that remained broken has now been completed. Or rather, this small story of Jesus in the garden represents, it's a guarantee of the fact that he is the faithful one in all areas who will fulfill this test. Just as Adam's one task of not eating from the tree represented the bigger task of being obedient in every area of life, so now Jesus' obedience in this one area represents the completion of a whole task of obedience. Now at this point you might be wondering, well, what's the relevance of this to me? How does this affect me? Well, I hope that you will see with me that this has huge impacts on what it means to be Christ followers. Because the problem that we find ourselves in as humans is bigger than we just need to have our sins forgiven. The Christian message does not teach that Jesus came and uh, uh, died. Sorry, let me say that again. The Christian message does indeed teach that Jesus came and died on the cross, bearing the sins of all who would believe in him. It does teach that Jesus came to die for your sins. But the Gospels, the very existence of the Gospels, gives us an issue. If Jesus only needed to come and die for our sins, why does it occupy such a small part of the back of them? Why do we have chapters and chapters of the life of Jesus? Why didn't Jesus just come as an adult on the day that he was going to die, die, resurrect, and go up again? He could have done that. Jesus could have merely died for our sins. But if that had happened... If all that was happened was that our sins were forgiven, where does that place us? Back in the garden to do what Adam failed to do. And why should we think that our victory would be any more certain than Adam's? In other words, if Jesus merely died for our sins, we would have a salvation of works. Yes, we're no longer, we don't longer have a debt, but we have a lot of work to do in order to complete that task. Let's remember the whole story here. If Red Riding Hood gets out of the wolf's belly and then goes, thanks very much, I'm going home, the story is not completed. Until that basket of treats is safely in granny's hands, that's when we can say the end. Jesus doesn't merely die for our sins and take us back to where Adam failed. He lives for us and completes what Adam was given to do. This story of Jesus in the wilderness and the story of Jesus on the cross are two sides of the same coin. Because uh, becoming a Christian is not about merely having your sins forgiven and then working the rest out by yourself. The works have been done on your behalf. Jesus is far superior to Adam. He has lived and died for his people. He has secured eternal life for them. This story, as I say, is a concentrated preview of a whole life of faithful obedience, fulfilling the law for us. Let's just think about what that means for us for a moment. You know, in terms of applying the story, one way that people have done it is they've gone, oh, let's have a concept of Lent, You know, Jesus gave something up for 40 days, I'll give something up for 40 days. But that's not what this story is teaching us at all. Jesus is not there as our example. He's there as our substitute, doing what all human history will tell us we cannot do. Jesus isn't starving for 40 days so that you can give up chocolate. He is living on your behalf so that he may give you his righteousness so that God may look at you and not just see someone who's not committed any sin, but that he may see you as one as righteous as his son, Jesus. By his obedience, he has defeated Satan. And so, as we come to the end, know this. You may well find yourself in that same position of temptation, of feeling battered by the devil. But know this. If you find your shelter in Christ, if you go to him as your uh, protection, your standing with God is not shaken by your success or failure. It is dependent on the one who has lived for you. You cannot fail that test because the test has already been completed on your behalf. Christ has not only died for sinners, he has lived for sinners. When you put your trust in him, God doesn't merely forgive you, but he gives you Jesus' perfect righteousness. But why? Why give it to me? Let's remember that first line of of the story. So that we can be the means of blessing this creation as God dwells with his holy people so that we can now get back to that first line of dwelling with God in perfect righteousness. When you open this story and see a starving man out in the desert, don't miss the real scene. See Jesus, the story completer, the one working on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing story that you have weaved together over so many thousand years and father we thank you for sending your precious son jesus the one who did not only die for us but lived for us lord jesus we thank you for your grace and for your mercy lord we thank you that we don't celebrate you merely for three days of suffering but for 30 years of faithfulness we thank you for your perfect righteousness that you've given us. We thank you for that story of completion, that you have fulfilled that covenant for us. Lord, we just pray that we would grow in gratitude and thankfulness in the reality of that story. Amen.